night of the year. Um, but as we established last time, our last one was not the first one ever. There was another one at another time. Anyway, um, but tonight, so last time we got together was Men on Mission, and this time is Men of the Word. And my, my hope in just going through this tonight is that um, there would be an encouragement to you that whatever season you are in, that to be devoted to the Word of the Lord is where thriving will be found. And this matters because whatever phase of life you're in, you are just heading into the next phase after it. I was reading a book recently um, by a Catholic priest and author named Ronald Rollheiser. And that's his real name. That's not a two truths and a lie thing. His parents really called him that. And he puts forward that there are three phases in life. So just get your mind around this because this is where we're going tonight. There are three basic phases in life. There is the first, which is essential discipleship, he calls. And the struggle in this phase is to get your life together. The second phase is called mature discipleship. And the struggle in this phase is to give your life away. And then the third phase he calls radical discipleship, which is the struggle to give your death away. Now, phase one, essential discipleship, is the struggle to get your life together. This is the phase of life where the struggle is to grow up, to get to bed on time, to get up on time, to dress yourself, clothe yourself, feed yourself, to just basically grow up. And it's the phase of life where the body that God designed and gave you is basically giving you all kinds of new energy to get you up off the couch and into a new life, to get you out of the house and to start a new life. And this typically means finding four things. It means finding a faith, a people or a community, a set of relationships that you will commit to, a faith, a people, a place, that is a location that you'll be in for a long time and put roots down in. And lastly, a vocation. And in this phase, you have maximum energies and resources and very few responsibilities. And so basically, you could do anything. Anything could happen in this phase. At the drop of a hat, you could go overseas, you could move city or country, you can change career 50 different times or degrees or whatever else it is. And the main struggle of this season is not to fall into the trap of taking every possible option. To not indulge in every pleasure. To not pursue every path. The challenge in this phase is really that you can't believe everything. You can't be in a relationship with everyone. You can't live everywhere and you can't do anything. You have to believe something. You have to commit to some relationships. You have to be in a certain place. And you have to commit to a job. And you have to resist the modern temptation to infinitely keep your options open. You have to lock some things down. And we often fail to do this, or many young men fail to do this in this phase, because they feel like to, to not commit now is actually to do my future self a bit of a favour. That is, if my future self finds himself locked into a whole bunch of commitments that didn't work out, that's going to be a real stitch up. So the best thing I can do is just try and not really commit to anything. But then what happens is that middle age comes through sooner than you were thinking, kind of punches you in the gut, and suddenly you just got to lock down all these commitments all at once. So whoever I'm with, I marry, we have kids, we find a place to live, and away we go. But that's the first phase and the struggle that goes with it. But then the next phase kicks in. You've made, potentially, all of these commitments. There's a place and a set of relationships, potentially even a marriage or a family, And you wake up, and instead of being full of energy and excitement, now the struggle is that you are locked in. 
The challenge is not to restrain yourself, but now you find yourself almost too constrained. And the challenge in this phase is to find meaning and joy in honouring the commitments that you've made. And Rollheiser explains it in this way, and it's a long quote, but I've got it up on the screen for you, so bear with me as we travel through it. But he explains the struggle of these first two phases in this way. He says, We are always struggling and doing battle with something, but the forces that beset us change with the years. When we are young and still trying to find and establish an identity, these forces are very much embedded in the chaotic, fiery energies of restlessness, wanderlust, sexuality, the quest for freedom and the sheer hunger for experience. The struggle with these energies can be disorienting and overpowering, even though they are the engines that drive us and propel us into adult life. The process of growing up is rarely serene. It is a struggle, a wrestling match, with every kind of untamed energy. Everyone has his or her own tale, usually involving a lot of painful restlessness and a few shameful humiliations of the not-so-gentle passage from childhood to adulthood. Moreover, it is not that these energies ever go dormant or disappear from inside us. Other struggles just set in and begin to eclipse them. As we sort out more and more who we are, we make permanent commitments and take on more and more responsibilities, and we soon find ourselves beset with a new set of struggles. Disappointment, tiredness, boredom, frustration, resentment. Consciously and unconsciously, we begin to sense that the big dream for our lives is over without it ever paying the huge dividends we expected. We become disappointed that there's not more, that we've not achieved more, and that we ourselves are not more. We sense ourselves stuck with the second best, reluctant to make our peace there. All those grandiose dreams, all that potential, all that energy, what have we achieved? Most all of us can relate to Henry David Thoreau's famous line, the youth gets together his materials to build a bridge to the moon, or perchance a palace or a temple on earth, and at length the middle-aged man concludes to build a woodshed with them. And that is the come down that is not easily digested. Moreover, once the sheer pulse of life so strong in us during our youth begins to be tempered by the weight of our commitments and the grind of the years, more of our sensitivities begin to break through. And we sense more and more of how we've been wounded and how life has not been fair to us. New demons then emerge, bitterness, anger, jealousy, and a sense of having been cheated. Disappointment cools the fiery energies of our youth and our enthusiasm for life begins to be tempered by bitterness and anger as we struggle to accept our limits and make peace with a life that now seems too small and unfair. Where we once struggled to properly control our energies, we now struggle to access them. Where we once struggled not to fall apart, now we struggle not to petrify. Where we once struggled with Eros, the god of passion, now we struggle with Lyssa, the goddess of anger. And where our sympathies once were with the prodigal son, they are now more with his older brother. As we age, we begin more and more to struggle with God. Well, that's all very depressing, Mr. Ronald Rollhauser, isn't it? But having made it through those first two struggles, there's still more. He says on the other side of that is the struggle to wrestle with death and to give your death away well. That is, to approach death in a way that will bless those around you, that they might grieve your life, but also find hope in Christ. Now that all sounds very heavy to start us off tonight, doesn't it? But that's just the nature of the struggle. And that's what everyone faces, but not everyone will be crushed by it. And more than that, it's very possible to actually thrive in it. And in fact, as many follow Christ, the call is to encourage one another to thrive in it. 
And the reason that we can have confidence in this is because we have a good shepherd. And not just a good shepherd, but the good shepherd. Jesus said, speaking about himself, he says, The thief comes only to steal and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And he had authority to do this because he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If Jesus is God and he is, and if Jesus is the good shepherd and he is, and if Jesus laid down his life for you and he did, then he can lead you through the valleys and mountains of life to greener pastures. That to follow Jesus and to trust in God's word can lead us through these challenges in life. That when Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 8, The man does not live off bread alone, but of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that he can be trusted. That his word does lead and guide us. It is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. See, as we think about thriving in any and every season, the key will be to know deeply God's word. In the phase of life where we're full of energy and options, how do we not get paralysed by all of that? By knowing the word of God. In the phase of life... Where really we've, we've, we do not want to become burdened or weighed down with boredom and resentment and all these things. How do we thrive in that season? It's the word of God. How do we die well in a way that will be a blessing to those around us? It's the word of God. And so men, we need not just to know the word, but to love God's word, to cling to God's word, to delight in his word and to treasure his word because God and his word cannot be separated. That is how he communicates who he is to us and how we can know him and walk closely with him. And so we want to be men who are of the word for every season. And the reason for it is because of what the psalmist lays out in the very first psalm of the Psalter. Look what it says in Psalm 1 in those first two sentences that camera it out. It says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. When the psalmist says blessed here, He's not saying this person is lucky. That's the general kind of usage of the word blessed. If you hear someone describing themselves as blessed or having lived a blessed life, if you say so-and-so has lived a blessed life, you usually mean like a charmed life. And it's largely because the prevailing worldview is that there either is no God or if there is a God, they can't really be known or they don't have much to do with us. So we're basically on our own. So anything that happens to you is some combination of hard work and luck. But the word blessed in the Bible is not meant to connote any kind of luck. That actually this is a very specific word. That when God takes Abraham aside and says, You who are an old man who is not able to have kids, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you all of the nations will be blessed. What he means is through Abraham many people will experience God's specific favour. That they will be a part of the people of God. But he says in this that he'll be working for their good. In Deuteronomy, Moses keeps imploring the people of God to choose life. That is to follow after God's way that they might be blessed and experience God's blessing as opposed to his curse. Where God is working against them or opposing them. And so to be blessed is to be working with God. And that his favour would be upon you. And here, the psalmist is saying, look, the one who is blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And he contrasts this. He says this is the opposite to the person who listens to the counsel of the wicked. Notice the progression there in what he says. He says, 
It's not the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, the one who is blessed is the one who delights in God's law and God's word. And you notice the progression there. You have someone who is walking in the counsel of the wicked, and then standing, and then sitting. This is the nature of walking away from God's word. It's a, it's a, the dynamic here is of being seduced. I don't know if you've ever been to Bali, but I've been once in my life, and that was one time too many. I was there by myself because I got there ahead of the rest of the group, and so I had one day to kill in Bali by myself. And again, that was, it was more than enough Bali for one lifetime. But one of the things I'd never experienced before was kind of a walk-along salesman. How do you, I don't know how you kind of put it, but this was kind of going through the main street of Bali, and I was looking for somewhere to eat. And what, what guys would do is they would come alongside you and pace alongside you as you're walking. And I got suckered into, I was maybe just too polite to kind of help him to jog on. But I ended up in his shop. And then the, the very next step was him to sit down while he brought some products out. And at that point I realized, all right, I'm being duped. I see what's going on here. I should have seen it coming a long way off. But it starts with them walking alongside and just getting conversation. Then kind of slowly kind of getting into the shop. And then once you're sitting down, it's very hard to leave. It's the process of being taken off track, isn't it? And here, the psalmist starts by saying, look, the one who is blessed, who will understand God's favor and experience that, is the one who delights in his law, not the one who is slowly taken off track to believe the counsel of the wicked. He's saying, stay focused on God's law. Meditate on it day and night. Delight in it. Don't just know it in your head, but let it be the thing that you seek and and find joy in. And not only this, but this is where thriving is found. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The claim here is that the man who doesn't just read God's word roughly or sort of know vaguely what's in it, but the one who delights in it, who pursues it for joy, will prosper. He'll be a man like a mighty oak by streams of water, being nourished constantly, able to bear fruit in season, able to thrive in the different seasons. He doesn't wither. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that the man who delights in God's word has life easy. That he never struggles, never doubts, never falters, never fails, never fears, never experiences failure or humiliation, never experiences disappointment, tiredness, boredom, frustration, resentment or regret. These are all parts of growing up and maturing in Christ. But the man who delights in the word of God knows where to go when he experiences these things. Knows how to bring his life before God. Knows where to go in scripture to bring light and insight in those times. When he is afraid, when he fails or is humiliated, when he is disappointed, tired, frustrated, on and on. And through this he finds strength to carry on and to even thrive in difficult seasons. It's through God's word. We're called to be men of the word that we might thrive. John Wesley, who's the great 18th century evangelist, called himself, and this is a great habit to get into, by the way, if you want to, just give yourself a pretty hot nickname. He called himself Homoeunius Labrie, meaning the man of one book. Yeah, and give yourself a Latin name as well. That's pretty, (laughs) that's pretty baller. 
But he called himself that. Uh, it was, it was, yeah, maybe it was a humble brag from this morning. But calling himself a man of one book was not to denote the fact that he was a simpleton who'd only ever read a single book in his life. But he was saying it because he, he really was a man who was devoted to one book in particular, and that was the Scriptures. And whilst he was actually someone who was incredibly widely read, there was one book that had the best of his attention, the best of his study, and the most of his mind. There was one book that ruled all other books. There was one book that was the measure by which all other books were to be measured, and it was the Bible. Because he knew it to be the very Word of God. He knew it not to be a mere book, but to have contained in it the words of life. And so he clung to it and leaned upon it like it was the only book in the universe. He knew what the disciples knew when they said to Jesus, where else have we to go when you alone have words of eternal life? This is what it means to delight in it. And so can I encourage you, whatever phase of life you're in, to be a man of one book. To be a man who knows one book above all other books, who knows the scriptures and delights in them because they're your very life. Because the psalmist in Psalm 119 was right to say, Your word, O Lord, is like a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's how I know where to go or what to do in any and every phase of life. Jesus was right to declare that we lean upon and depend upon God's word even more than food. And to put you in this direction, just for the sake of time, I want to point to one scripture in particular that I think is kind of like a, a headline scripture for each of those phases of life, whichever you sort of find yourself in today. If you would say you're kind of in this first phase of life, as Rollheiser would describe it, and the struggle is to get your life together, can I draw your mind to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be given you as well. I think the biggest mistake I see men make in this phase of life is to try and do everything and to keep your options as open as possible. I was listening to a lecture on choice recently where the guy said everyone, everyone should get two tattoos on the theme of getting tattoos. He said on one, on one arm, it should say this. You cannot do everything, be everyone, everywhere, all the time. And then on the other hand, you should get a tap that says you can do something important with some people at a particular place at a particular time. I don't think it's really going to catch on anytime soon. You may have to work on the wording and making it a little bit more punchy before anyone would bother to do that. But you kind of get the point, right? I think in that phase of life, where there are infinite possibilities and very few responsibilities, the temptation is just to button mash, to just do everything. But here, the exhortation from Jesus is to seek first his kingdom, to be locked into something, to make some commitments that actually will limit you. Because the temptation is to shake off all possible limitations and to think that is what freedom is. And yet it's not. Because to follow Jesus will involve limitations. It will mean some relationships, some things are off limits. It will mean some commitments. A commitment to a group of people, Jesus' people, the church. A commitment to make disciples and to follow after your saviour, Christ. It will mean limiting yourself. But to trust him that if you seek first his kingdom, everything else gets thrown in with it. 
what you're supposed to do with your life, what you're meant to be about, all of that will come in as you follow after Jesus and you throw it all on Him and stake it all on Him. And so can I encourage you, if you're in this phase, men, don't waste this phase. Learn to be committed and self-controlled. Trust in God's Word. Tame and channel the energies, the good energies that God has given you to commit to something that will matter. Be about making disciples and building God's kingdom and be a part of his global purposes. And to approach the next phase of life with some amount of courage and conviction rather than what is kind of the the modus operandi, which is to kind of stumble through the first phase, putting off adulthood for as long as possible, and then when it seems imminent, just hitting go on everything else and then spending the rest of your life wondering whether or not you really wanted to commit to these things. I encourage you to make the most of it. And if I could encourage you two things in this phase, it would be this. One is to set up the habit of diligently and daily studying God's Word so that you might learn in that phase when you're facing temptations of many kinds where to go in God's Word for comfort, for restoration, for healing, for guidance, for strength, that He might be growing you as a man of God. And the second one is to, to commit to God's people to develop significant relationships and friendships that you've invested in over time that God might use to help you to flourish, to bring accountability, but also strength and growth in that first phase. So that's the verse for phase one. And phase two would be this. The struggle in this phase is to give your life away rather than to try and take it back. And the struggle is to believe that in this phase of life, I'm going to pour myself out for others. And that this would be good. And this can be really hard. And if you're feeling the pinch of the second phase, if you've, if you've made a bunch of commitments that are now starting to, you're starting to feel the traction of those. The commitments are made around work, around a place to live, around family, or even marriage or family, if that's where you find yourself. Those are all now starting to bite. Can I say if you're feeling that, just be encouraged rather than discouraged. It means, in God's grace... You've been able to to commit to something that matters. And if you hold fast to God's word, this will be the phase of life where you make your major contribution to the world. It will be. But it will be the struggle to believe that it is better to give your life away than to try and hold on to it selfishly. And for that, I draw on Jesus' words when he says in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Jesus Jesus had the ability to say so much in so few words, didn't he? But it is the most counterintuitive thing that to come to know Christ is to give your life away only to find it. The most counterintuitive thing I've done on a regular basis is to reverse park a trailer. I don't know if you've ever done this, or, or if you have, and you've seen someone reverse park a semi, you'll take a good five minutes just to watch that process complete, because it's an astonishing thing. But to reverse park a trailer is always that thing, and I, I get it every time, that when you're looking back trying to do it, you've got to remember left is right, right is left, right? It's, all, it's always backwards. It's kind of counterintuitive the whole time you do it. And if you don't get it quite right, and then you double down on it and accelerate, you jackknife the trailer and ruin everything, basically. 
But Jesus saying here is so counterintuitive, isn't it? He says, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. And if you try and save it, you're going to lose it. To come to know Jesus is to say, I surrender authority of my life to you, Jesus. I give it to you. Whatever you say life is about, that's what it's about. And I'll, I trust you with it. But then discipleship is continuing to do that, isn't it? Time and time again. And it's in this phase of life, what Rollheiser calls the, the mature discipleship, the struggle is to believe that to give my life away is the best thing to do with it. And when the pinch hits, I think men respond in one of three ways. The first is to hold on to your life by quitting everything. This is the classic like midlife crisis. I turned 40 this month, so we'll see what happens. I don't, I don't feel it coming, but I don't know. Maybe it, just, maybe it just hits you on the day. But the midlife crisis is kind of the thing where a guy has made all these commitments, realized that maybe these aren't the commitments I want to make, and he resets everything and then goes back to the first phase and tries to be 20 years old again. Get an earring and a ponytail and a tattoo. That's the third reference to tattoos tonight. <clears throat> but that's one response. It's to say, I feel the commitment... I don't like it, I'm out. The second one is to then hold on to your life by sort of just half committing. And this can look like a man who's accepted, all right, I've made these commitments, I've got this stuff that I've now got to be in. I'd probably be sadder if I left those, if I left my marriage and family and job and city and all of that sort of stuff. So it's probably better to stay around, but I don't heaps like it. And so what a man will do in that phase is one of two things. He'll either kind of just half be about everything, sort of semi-awake in life, sort of at his job, sort of at home, sort of living for the weekend and hobbies and that sort of thing. Or to say, look, I can't really be about all of these things at the same time. I'll just take one thing, my work or a hobby that I'm really passionate about that and be into that and let everything else kind of simmer along on half lit. But the third way is the man who looks and and leans into it all and says, this is all a bit overwhelming, but I believe that I trust God with this and that he's going to show me how to walk through this season well and to give my life away to those around me in a way that is going to demonstrate that I follow Christ and that his life is at work in me. And so I'd encourage you men, if you are in this phase, to lean into it. And if you're not in it, to not be what is kind of common in the culture around, which is to fear that that's coming up and to try and put off adulthood for as long as possible. But to be men who lean into it and to trust that Christ will be at work with you even in this season and even with the unique struggles that come with it. And if I could recommend you two things in this season, it would be this. The first is to learn the discipline that when you fail or fall short or feel overwhelmed, or deal with things that you just weren't expecting to deal with, regret or disappointment or anything like that, you develop the reflex to turn to to God and His Word to find strength in the moment to carry through. You'd be a man of one book who knows where to find comfort, or when you don't, to ask your brothers where you might find comfort, or to keep searching until you find comfort in the Word of God. And then the second one for this season would be this is to learn new ways with dealing with feeling overwhelmed. In this season, if it feels like you've just got more on your plate than you can possibly handle, one of the things that God might be doing is teaching you that you need either new ways to cope or new ways to manage. 
It may be the case that the time when you could not really plan for life and then just do it based off the sheer energy that you just innately had, it may be that that phase is gone and you're going to need a little bit more structure in place to be able to do things and do things well over the long term. It just might be that God's going to do a new work through. It might be that you need more help. You might need in this phase and in earlier phases to go to a counsellor. To actually get extra help that you might see where God is actually looking to change and transform you. But to not miss the moment and see that this is the time, God willing, when you might make your largest contribution to the world around you. That there is dignity and honour in that and goodness in God's design in that. And then on to phase three. This is the season, apparently, that is the time to give your death away. And I won't spend as much time on this one. But just to say this, that as I get to this point in life, it has been a surprise for me how, maybe it's just been particularly this year, but I think probably more than any other season in life, this is the time where friends within our circle or even just without have been getting diagnoses and terminal diagnoses at a rate that I didn't expect to be encountering at this time. And I can definitely and confidently say that a secular worldview gives you very little preparation for dealing with something as significant as death. But the scriptures are replete with resources to understand God and his world and to know that even in death we have life. Paul, towards the end of his life, wrote in Philippians 1.21 that for me to live is, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we be men who in that season will be able to look back on our life and say God was faithful and through his word led me through each and every season and by his grace I clung to him and his word and imagine being able to, like Paul, look back on a life at that time, whatever time it is that God has appointed and to be able to say like Paul, I've run the race, I've fought the good fight. What a blessing that would be. So I'm going to pray that by his word that we would be men who are able to thrive in each and every season. Whatever it is that we are facing at the moment, you would have strength through God's word to thrive and to encourage one another. And not only that, to be a light within this city that there is a hope that doesn't fade in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you haven't left us in this world to guess at what it is you would have us do or how it is that you would have us live. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And so we pray that we would be men who trust you, who hold fast to your word, who cling to your word, who know your word, and who in each and every season are able to thrive because we know that you are our God And that you alone have words of eternal life. And so, Father, I just pray for any men in this building who are feeling either disoriented or confused or discouraged or worn down, that you would uphold their spirit, that you would encourage them and lead us to encourage one another. Father, we pray that as men, we would spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we would spur one another on to know you more, to be devoted to you, and that through this, that we would see one another to thrive, 
and encourage one another to trust you in every stage, in every phase of life. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Cam. And the way that we're going to finish tonight is actually by splitting into groups to pray about these things. But actually, I might, I might actually kick it over to you, Cam, if you can what we're going to do. Yeah, um, yeah we're just going to spend a bit more time praying now um, in, in like, the group. Um, and as you do so, um,